You're listening to Science Friday from NPR News. I'm Ira Flato. My next guest, underwater explorer Robert Ballard. He has probably passed more time on the bottom of the ocean than most of us have probably spent swimming in it. His work, uh, his work day, a typical work day, may include a two-and-a-half-hour commute each way to the ocean bottom in a cramped submersible. But what he's found down there in five decades of exploration has changed the way we look at the oceans and our planet. Think of the things that he has discovered. You know, he's discovered those hydrothermal vents, the superheated hot springs on the ocean floor, the creatures living there, that uh, they certainly rival any uh, mariner's tales of monsters or mermaids. You've got those... 10-feet-long tube worms, football-sized clams with uh, blood-red bodies. He's found all kinds of stuff down there, all in the darkness where no one thought any living thing could survive. But he's also made uh, great scientific discoveries, as, as he has. and He's also an underwater archaeologist. And in 1985... Dr. Ballard found the wreck of the Titanic, which is probably the thing he's most famous for, but probably not the biggest scientific advance that he's done. Uh, He's also, soon after that, he found a a Nazi warship. And lately, he's been doing other underwater excavations, looking for evidence of ancient civilizations underwater in the Americas, searching for Byzantine merchant ships in the Black Sea. Where is he going next? What's left to find? What kind of new technology is he using? Well, for the rest of the hour, we're going to be talking about those expeditions with with our modern-day Captain Nemo. Robert Ballard is president of the Institute for Exploration. He's explorer-in-residence for the National Geographic Society. He's also the director of the Center for Ocean Exploration and Archaeological Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. And he joins us from Waterford, Connecticut. Welcome back to Science Friday, Dr. Ballard. It's a pleasure to be back. It's been a while. I think I used up 40 minutes just saying what you've done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot left to be done, fortunately. (laughs) Do you think of yourself as as like a modern-day Captain Nemo? Well, I hope so. I mean, that was my dream as a little kid, and it's been my driving engine for years and years. Uh, 20,000 leagues, as you remember, was not down to the bottom of the ocean. It was driving along the bottom of the ocean in a submarine looking out of that big window. And uh, that's what I'm doing, so I think I might have pulled it off. <laughs> when when did you first, how young were you? When did you first discover that this was your career, this is what you wanted oh, to do? Oh, very early. When I uh, grew up in San Diego, I was a little kid, and, and I lived by the ocean, and that was my play yard. And back then, the parents simply said, you know, get, get home before it's dark. Right. And I would spend the day in the tidal pool, so I had to learn the tides. And I remember the movie Robinson's Crusoe, and I wanted to see those foot footprints of Friday uh, in the sand. So I just began extremely early, and then I got a big break when I was in high school. I got a, in fact, it was 50 years ago this month, and on my first oceanographic expedition with at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, I had a scholarship there with a by the National Science Foundation, and we went out and we got in a huge storm. We got hit by a rogue wave, and we got rescued by the Coast Guard, and I was 17, and so, you know, too young to realize I was supposed to die. And it was just an incredible experience, and I became hooked on going out to sea on expeditions, and 
in the 50 years since. I've done around 125, 130, and we're getting ready to do it again uh, next month when we head uh, into the Black Sea and the Mediterranean on our, our own ship. The first time I've ever had my own ship, and guess what its name is? Naturally, we've named it the Nautilus. Wow. We're going to see a TV series on cable with you. Absolutely, National Geographic uh, Television and National Geographic Channel are producing. Uh, it's going to take us about two and a half years to produce a series called Oceanus, and it's going to be about exploration of the world's oceans. It's. What well, did we lose you? I think we. I. I. I think we lost Dr. Ballard. We'll. We'll get him back. Uh, 1-800-989-8255 is our number. We'll get him back on the phone or uh, on our our magical lines that uh, I we, or various, on planet Earth <laughs> <laughs> without a beat. <laughs> can you hear me, Doctor Ballard? Okay, I certainly can. Okay, that's good. Uh, tell us about that. Tell us about this adventure that you're about to go on. What What are you well, going to be looking for? What What's it involved? Well, these two ships will will both be going on their maiden voyage this year. The Okeanos in the Pacific Ocean and the Nautilus will be in the Aegean. And then my favorite spot right now is the Black Sea. And what's really wonderful about these ships is because they're going where no one has gone before and we don't know what we're going to find, we've had to come up with a whole new paradigm that we call telepresence, a way of bringing experts to the scene of a discovery minutes after it's taken. In place, And so for the last 28 years, actually it was 28 mm-hmm. years ago, we published this dream in National Geographic magazine. We have a copy someday, right here, actually. Absolutely. We do. December, we have it right here. Yeah, December 1981 issue. And the idea behind that is that you, you, you have these ships out exploring, but they're connected by high bandwidth satellite uh, from the bottom of the ocean to a new uh, center. It's a new building we just dedicated at the Graduate School of Oceanography at URI. It's called the Inner Space Center. And it's sort of like Houston is to outer space we have for inner space. And we are operating our vehicles 24 hours a day, and what they see is being beamed back to this inner space center. And then from there, using this new wonderful Internet 2, this new high-bandwidth Internet that's sweeping the country right now, we're connecting all of the oceanographic institutions to the inner space center so that we can actually bring a scientist aboard the ship, take him down to the bottom of the ocean in a matter of seconds. Well, so you've, you've named this inner space as opposed to outer space. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It is inner space. It's yeah. the largest living volume on the planet. It's the world's oceans. Is that a challenge to NASA? Are you poking them a little bit? Absolutely. I mean, I love NASA. My father was an aerospace engineer and worked for North American Aviation. They built the Apollo spaceships. And so I was brought up on the space program. But I love outer space, and I love the fact they're studying the heavens, and I, I hope to go there someday. But right now I'm on Earth, and I want to know more about the planet that I'm living on. And, and we have better maps of Mars than, than the, uh, our own planet. So I'm interested in exploring Earth. So when you have – let's talk about this telepresence. So you, if, if someone finds something and it goes back to the hub – can yeah. you wake somebody up and say, hey, look, we yep. found something, you know? To- That's the idea. We're going to run it sort of like the way a hospital runs the emergency room. You know, a hospital has no idea what an ambulance is going to bring in Sunday morning at 2 a.m. So they have what's called a doctor's on call. They have physicians mm-hmm. that can respond to a hospital within 20 minutes if, if they're needed. So we're setting up this 
20-minute response by connecting the oceanographic institutions, which can move at the speed of light, uh, through the Internet, too. We're building remote consoles so that we can literally call someone up, imagine, call them up 2 a.m. Sunday morning, wake them up. They'll be very angry at that moment. But then we'll tell them we made a discovery and that they're on call and they won't be angry. Imagine they're laying in bed. They'll take their laptop. They'll pop it open. They're naturally wireless in their homes. And we will then patch the phone to the pilot who's navigating this underwater vehicle in 20,000 feet of water, thousands of miles away, and they'll talk to the pilot and take over the con and then make a decision. They'll decide, you know, if, if they, we discovered something that wasn't that important, you know, they'll say, take an aspirin and call me in the morning. But if it's really important, they'll jump out of bed, <laughs> they'll get in their car, and they have to be within 20 minutes of one of these remote consoles. And while they're in their car, they're going to be calling their friends cause, and their graduate students because they need to take over the ship for the next couple days. So they'll need five or six other scientists, and then they'll all run to their consoles, and they'll all be patched in, and then they'll all take over. It's wow. really cool. And so what area will you be looking at, and, look, and what will you be looking for? Well, in the Pacific, the you know we had a, a, a big get-together at National Geographic who have been really helpful in all of this. We had a workshop uh, working with NOAA, and we brought in experts that uh, have passion for the Pacific. About 40 different uh, groups of scientists submitted white papers and said, you know, if you're ever in the Pacific and you want to discover something, go here. And so we've got this map of the Pacific, and it's got boxes all over it. And then what we're going to do is we're going to move around – uh, from box to box, but then we're going to wander along the way. We call it the box and stick strategy. Mm -hmm. I think most of the exciting discoveries will be done between boxes as we're navigating our way from A to B. And so we have that plan. They're now uh, developing a schedule for the Okeanos, and it'll begin really in earnest in May. Most of what's well, going on right now are sea trials. But, but, but the, Pacific ship, is, the Pacific is a big spot. It's a pretty, third of the Earth. Well, well, so which part of the <laughs> yeah. Pacific do you look at? Well, they're in Seattle right now, yeah. and they're going to work their way across. <laughs> they're going to work right? their way to the Indian Ocean. I mean, to the, uh, excuse me, they're going to start in Seattle. Right. They're going to work towards the Hawaiian Islands. They're going to explore that entire seamount chain. Then they're going to end up, by May of next year, they'll be in Indonesia, in the western regions of the Pacific. Mm. And then they'll work their way back. While they're doing that, our yeah. ship, the Nautilus, will start its campaign actually uh, uh, next month. Uh, we're doing a program uh, for National Geographic on the Battle of Gallipoli uh, in the Dardanelles. And then we're going to come down. The Sea of Marmar is a very fascinating body of water. If you know your geography, if you go up through the Aegean, and you go through the uh, through the Dardanelles, and that's where the Hellespont is, where the Persian armies crossed on their way to battle the Greeks. This is also where the Germans and the Turks fought the British in the Battle of Gallipoli in World War mm -hmm. I. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of warships that were sunk there. And there's a particular British submarine they'd like us to find called E-20. And it's in the Sea of Marmar, which is a, a sea between the Aegean and the Black Sea. And it's anoxic like the Black Sea. And it's also the same body of water that Jason and the Argonauts traversed in search of the Golden Fleece. So we know that it's had maritime trade for thousands and thousands of years, and we hope to find perfectly preserved ancient shipwrecks while we're looking for this U-20 submarine. So that's the first mission. Then we're going to come down the Aegean coast to an area uh, called Yelikovic and Bodrum in the eastern Aegean, and 
We last year found several ships from the time of, uh, of Imperial Rome. We're going to be going back and imaging those and continuing our search. And then we're going to double back up through the Bosporus and go into the Black Sea uh, in early September, working with the Ukrainian Academy of Science. We're working off of uh, the Crimea, which is, uh, there used to be ancient Greek colonies there, one in particular called Kersenesis. And just off of that ancient Greek colony, the bottom of the ocean plunges down to 6,000 feet, and the water there is poisonous. It's completely anoxic. It's the largest reservoir of hydrogen sulfide on Earth, and there we expect to find the most perfectly preserved ancient shipwrecks in the world. Because there's no oxygen down there. Exactly. There's no one to eat anything. In fact, we have already found a beautifully preserved Byzantine shipwreck on the other side of the Black Sea off the Turkish coast at a, a, a place called Sinope. And we found in 1,500 feet of water, we came in with our robots, and there was a ship's mast with rigging on it. And we dropped down 40 feet, and there was this ancient ship perfectly preserved. Do you, do you raise these ships? you plan on bringing these up? Well, it has been done. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. in, in, in typical marine archaeological programs, they try to recover everything. That's not our strategy. Our strategy is actually to build underwater museums in place. And about uh, not only around this ship off Turkey, but we also found a Byzantine shipwreck off of the uh, mm -hmm. Crimea. And we're building underwater museums. And the reason for that is very simple. A lot of these ships had a lot of the same thing. They're sort of bulk carriers, like stopping a truck on the I-95, and it's got a thousand of these things and a thousand of those things. We really don't want all of that stuff. We just need a representative sample. So what we're doing is we're actually storing everything down there because it's happy down there. It's equilibrated and we don't want to go through the expensive mm -hmm. process of conservation and preservation and then have to take care of these objects for in perpetuity, which is a long time. Mm -hmm. as <laughs> I, 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 I get it. As Yogi Berra would say. Uh, so well, let, the, me just uh, give it, let me just remind everybody that uh, this is Science Friday from NPR News. Hi, Myra Flato, talking with, uh, with Bob Ballard about his uh, explorations. Uh, so you leave the stuff down there. Uh, I, you know, I, 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 I know how you feel about the Titanic, and I've been seeing more exhibits about things being brought up and shown around right. the country, and that, that, that does, does it upset you, doesn't it? Well, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it's the, the primary motivation of this is making money. So, I mean, this is not being done. Uh, for in a for like a research program, they're they're down there to make money, uh, and we've had these kinds of people since they built the pyramids. So this is something that society's dealt with for a long, long time. Um, my saddest moment was when I went into the pyramids of Egypt and everything was gone, or to go to to the. Uh, I think the Elgin marbles should be back <laughs> in Athens. Uh, that's where they belong, or the Rosetta Stone, and so. Uh, it's sort of like taking belt buckles off the Arizona. I think that that's just something you don't do. It's You don't go to Gettysburg with a shovel. I think there are certain sites, I'm not saying you preserve everything, but certain sites that de deserve to be preserved. And now with the technology of telepresence, we can take you there. Yeah. Uh, we did, a, with National Geographic a few years ago, we did a live broadcast from the deck of the Titanic. And what someday you're going to actually wire the Titanic, and it's going to be a place you visit electronically. Because telepresence technology that we're sort of pioneering is really the beginning of electronic travel.
Uh, you're going to have in your home, certainly within the next 10 years, a, a, a room, and we used to call it the den. And uh, when you turn on the room, the walls will come on. And you'll sit, it's probably spherical, so it isn't uh, square-like walls, but you'll be in a spherical room, and you'll rent a robot from Hertz, and you'll go for a drive in the Serengeti and spend the afternoon driving around. And it'll be very inexpensive compared to flying to the Serengeti. Um, what's really neat about these uh, in installation of remote cameras, we've been doing it in the National Marine Sanctuaries, particularly in Monterey, we went in and installed underwater cameras on, on cables so they could ride through the, through the uh, sanctuary. And what we found was when we were installing the cameras, everyone ran away. But as soon as we left, all the creatures came back out, went up and poked their, their noses into the cameras. And we were able to see things that divers wouldn't see. And, you know, this is something you can do in, in you know, Yellowstone Park. You can, you know, go and wire up Yellowstone. They've already got the ring road in there. And you'll be able to see creatures that would normally run away, like the packs of wolves. So telepresence is really going to change our lives. Uh, we're going to do more and more uh, from home. I think what's wonderful about telepresence, because it's impacting on my personal life, is it's reinventing the family. You're able to spend much, much more time at home. Even in my business of exploration, I'm spending now more time at home than any time in my life, and I'm exploring more than any time in my life. So it's mm -hmm. a really a plus-plus. Talking uh, with Robert Ballard uh, about his uh, explorations about telepresence, we have to take a short break. We'll come back, take more of your questions. Our number, 1-800-989-8255. Also, you can uh, tweet us. We like your tweets, at... S-C-I-F-R-I, at Sci-Fry. Uh, send in those questions. We'll, uh, we'll be finishing up the hour with Dr. Ballard. So stay with us. We'll be right back. listening to Science Friday from NPR News. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking this hour about exploring the depths of our oceans and the seas with my guest Robert Ballard, president of the Institute for Exploration. He's explorer in residence for the National Geographic Society and director of the Ocean for of the Center for Ocean Exploration and Archaeological Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. Our number 1-800-989-8255. Let's go to Dave in Tallahassee. Hi Dave. Hello. Hi there. Uh, Dr. Ballard, you worked with my mother on the uh, Black Sea shipwreck. The uh, sure name is Dr. Cheryl Ward. Oh, of course. Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, we've met a couple times, too. Um, I just wanted to say it's uh, a lot of your work and her work that inspired me to be a mechanical engineer. Uh, I went to John Hopkins, where I worked with Lewis Whitcomb. Yeah, a neat guy. He uh, worked a lot with us at Woods Hall when I was there years ago. Well, what I was wondering was, um, sort of the inspiration that you gave to me, I was wondering if there, you had any ideas where you could, you know, get more of the public involved in maritime exploration and things like that, because it seems like it's sort of a hush-hush topic in the world. Well, what's really neat about this new Inner Space Center at the University of Rhode Island is that we now, thanks to National Geographic and, and funding from, from NOAA and the state of Rhode Island, we're building a, a complete television production studio. 
And with that, we're able to then broadcast live our discoveries uh, to schools and, and, and organizations all across the country. We have two programs, as you know, the Jason Project, uh, which is a distant learning program for middle school kids at National Geographic. And then we also have another one at the Sea Research Foundation called Immersion Presents. And we do a lot of informal broadcasting to kids at risk and boys and girls clubs and museums and, and, and aquariums all across the country. And so through exploration, we want to use the excitement of exploration and discovery to motivate young people, particularly kids in middle school, because that's where the battle for a scientist and an engineer is won or lost, to get them turned on by exploration and then maybe turned on to take those extra classes that are maybe a little tougher than the other ones. Thanks, Dave, for calling. Have a good weekend. Thanks a lot, Ira. You're welcome. Um, in your early career, you were doing all these scientific pursuits down. You were going out to the hydrothermal vents, the underwater earthquakes, and the sea mounts. Um, and then in the 80s, you, you began searching for sunken ships. What made you decide to shift gears at that time? Well, you know, uh, in in many professions, you progress up the chain of command. Mm -hmm. uh, I, for example, uh, was an, a naval officer for 30 years, and you start out as an ensign, and you move up the ranks, and, and everyone wants to be an admiral someday. And I actually refused promotion above a commander because I knew that if you got above a commander, you got out of the battle. I mean, right. I wanted to stay in the game. Right. And w in academia, I, I, I always stayed. Uh, within the research game. I didn't want to become a chairman of a department or a dean because then, again, you leave the battlefield. And so I've always tried to stay in the game, but I wanted to uh, be energized by it, and I sort of tried to reinvent myself about every 10 or 15 years to take on a whole new genre uh, so that I would be excited by it and motivated by something new, but still stay in the field of exploration. And fortunately, when I went to University of California at Santa Barbara, I had a quadruple major in math, physics, chemistry, and geology. So I have a broad-based background, and I feel comfortable in a lot of different things, and I certainly feel comfortable working with engineers. And most recently, I've begun working with social scientists because I always actually loved history as a kid, mm -hmm. uh, thinking my passion for history would be just something that would you know fall by the wayside as I went into physical sciences and got my doctorate in oceanography. But through this reinvention and through the creation of this new field, which is a very exciting new endeavor, archaeological oceanography, which is taking oceanographers, engineers, and social scientists and going into the deep oceans where we think there's probably more history in the deep sea than all mm -hmm. the museums of the world combined, and we're only now opening those doors to those museums. And so that's very exciting, yeah. and, it, it, and that's why I changed my course, just to stay, yeah, stay alive and young. <laughs> Is it Would it be possible to actually find fossils that may be millions of years old buried underwater? Oh, oh definitely. Yeah. In fact... Uh, uh, the, the the issue you have to deal with is uh, is at depth below about 3,000 feet. You pass below what's called the calcium carbonate compensation depth, and the water in the deep sea is undersaturated in calcium carbonate, which is mostly you know what bones are made of. For example, uh, on the Titanic and on the Bismarck, uh, those ships are below the calcium carbonate compensation depth. So once the critters eat their flesh and expose the bones, the bones dissolve. Mm -hmm. Now, in the Black Sea, because there's no critters to eat, uh, the, the bones should not be exposed. So you should have perfectly mummified 
fossils. You should actually have perfectly mummified ancient mariners uh, in the Black Sea. And we expect someday, as we're excavating these ships, to actually come across crew members who will look like they're asleep. We've seen, uh, for example, dolphins down there that have died a natural death, and they're on the bottom and they look like they're asleep. And so they're not only fossilized, they're perfectly preserved. Now, million, you know, to get a fossil, though, you know, you're talking about millions and mm-hmm. millions of years. I actually have a meeting coming up next week with Paul Serrano, who's a, another explorer in residence for the National Geographic Society. And he's interested in, in me finding a t- completely fossilized uh, uh, dinosaur bones that were lost mm-hmm. on a ship. And there, they're not calcium carbonate. There, they've been replaced in most cases by silica. And silica will be preserved. So, yes, you should be able to find fossils that are no longer calcium carbonate-based fossils, but silica-based fossils. I I was at a meeting recently of archaeologists, uh, uh, people actually studying hominids. And there was one scientist who was talking about uh, his theory. And this has been – this theory has been around for a while that – that some of the some hominids may have made their way, apes uh, may have made their way to live on the seashore of Africa and in, in Eastern Africa, and that we you know the problem is you can never find the fossils of these people or these not, not people. Well, if they've been but, truly fossilized, yeah. where you've replaced the the calcium carbonate with silica, for example, uh, then yes, the fossils should be there. And in fact. Uh, if you go down off of Miami, and I've been diving down there, there's a place called Miami Terrace, and there uh, everything has been uh, fossilized by phosphates, mm-hmm. and w- you can find fossils down there, and, mm-hmm. and we have. So th- th- we have found fossils under the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1-800-989-8255. Let's go to Jessica in Boston. Hi, Jessica. Hi. How are you? Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Well, first I want to thank you, Dr. Ballard, for all that you do. I think you've done phenomenal work, and I've followed you for many years. Um, well, I have you. two daughters now, and I'm hoping that to get them interested into, in the oceano- you know, oceanography as a whole. And I was wondering, I remember, seem to remember you speaking about possibility of colonization of the ocean or doing some sort of floating something where people can be on the ocean. Is that something that, that I recalled? The, or No, you're right, uh, because as you know, 72% of the Earth is oceans. Yes. And we, we only live on 18% of the planet yes. because we don't live at the polar regions. We don't live in the extreme desert regions. So if you really look at where people are living, it's a pretty small percentage of the planet. So naturally, the ocean is an obvious possibility, particularly as our population continues to rise, and particularly as sea level rises, we're going to have more of it underwater. Um, so uh, what we're adopting is the, the, it's called a spar buoy concept. In fact, the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in La Jolla, California, built years ago a boat called FLIP. And it's a really cool boat. And it was developed by the Office of Naval Research to do acoustical work. And the reason for that is it looks like a big cigar, big, long uh, telephone pole. Uh-huh. And, and then it's about 300 and some odd feet long. And, it, and it, it's towed out to sea. And then it floods tanks. And it flips. And it goes vertical. And, and, and like an iceberg, most of it's underwater. But the part that's above water is very stable. And oceans cannot really excite it. As waves go by, you know, big big wave, a 30-foot wave, for example, would only make it move about three feet. And in fact, oil companies are now using that spar buoy concept for their offshore platforms. They've taken a bunch of these buoys and put them all together and they build a platform on them. So it's very possible that we can build 
individual homes. Uh, I'd love to have a condominium that <laughs> was offshore, and, and oh. it's best it's best on the on the west coast because you need about three hundred feet of water for this to work. Yeah, and and you need the uh, west coast; it goes deep fast. And I've always thought, since I grew up in California, it would be wonderful to have one of these uh, off of Catalina or off of Los Angeles. Look back at the skylight, but then have the privacy. Uh, and then take these uh, uh, 300-foot-long uh, houses and actually grow aquaculture on the side. You can do all sorts of thermal exchanges for air conditioning. You can rotate it mm. uh, systematically so it's always seen. Solar panels are always seeing the sun. Uh, one of these days, you know, when I get this present project uh, out of my hair and into the hands of the next generation, I would like in my final my wife's not so sure she wants to live on it, but I've got her well, to agree to at least vacation on it once well, <laughs> well, well, Bob, you know, oceans are rising, right? I mean, well, we need to be ready for have more kinds of ideas like this because even well, in the know, United I, States, isn't, isn't the water going to be rising here over the next century? Well, it's going to be rising for a long, long time because all the ice is actually going to melt, unfortunately. It's not going to not melt. Everything's going to melt, and sea level is going to rise. Uh, but even if it doesn't rise, there's just so much real estate that's inhabitable. And, and you know, you can build these in such a way that, you know, your bedroom is underwater, like it's a giant aquarium underwater. And you can then be up on the top. And like I say, you can control it so you're always in the shade on one side. It's I've actually done designs. I did a program with Alan Alda on the American Experience. And they actually, uh, on PBS, and they actually created... Uh, a beautiful model of my ship, mm. and it's sort of cool. So if you mm. want to learn there more about it, look up uh, Alan Alda's program, American Experience. Right. I just want to interrupt with a uh, little news bulletin from the NPR News Desk. Uh, Alaska Governor Sarah Palin announced that she'll step down. She's resigning later this month, and she's handing uh, the reins over to Lieutenant Governor. The Lieutenant Governor will uh, hear more about that on All Things Considered following Science Friday, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. Uh, so where do you go now immediately, Bob? What's your next... You have well, the boat. Right you now, have the boat going out. You have two boats. You have one the, on your, with the Nautilus. You have that one going to the Pacific. That's right. Well, uh, I'm taking, in fact, in the studio here. I'm, I'm looking at him right now. Is my son Benjamin, and he's 15 years old, and he's been waiting and waiting and waiting. And I told him when he could first talk. And he said, Dad, I want to go on one of your expeditions. And I said, Ben, you can't go till you're 15. Well, he's 15. And so he's going to be a Jason Argonaut uh, on our expedition. And he's going on the Nautilus with me in August on the maiden voyage out of the Bosporus into the Sea of Marmar and down to Gallipoli. Uh, so that's my next expedition. Uh, we'll be in uh, in the Aegean. And then we're going to end it up in, in the Black Sea. So... Uh, I'm right now getting ready to go to Block Island, so we can. We always go there as a family, and we love to live off the sea, and so we're going to do a lot of fishing mm -hmm. and clamming and uh, just enjoy New England. Finally, the sun actually yeah. comes out once in a while this year. Uh, <laughs> June was the most dreary June I've ever seen I in know. I live life. in Connecticut, so I'm right next door. We're talking with, <laughs> we're talking with Bob Ballard this hour on Science Friday from NPR News. Uh, I know that... Just in a couple of minutes I have left, tell me, what, what's it like to have to be your own salesperson, right? You're an entrepreneur. You've spent your yeah. whole life having to sell your ideas and then get them. Yeah, but then you get to live them. I think yeah. uh, that comes with the turf. If you really want to be free, you're going to be uh, alone. I mean, uh, freedom is, most people say they want to be free, but real freedom is you wake up and it's a blank sheet of paper. 
and most people would like to have it written. And I love the freedom. I love dreaming up things. And fortunately, I have great sponsors like National Geographic, like uh, the Navy, like NOAA, who bet on my horse uh, over the years. And uh, I, I just enjoy uh, doing things that have never been done before. I enjoy the freedom of an explorer uh, to literally go where no one has gone before. Uh, I'm confident that the Nautilus and the Okeanos Explorer are going to make incredible discoveries. How can we fail? Most of my really important discoveries were done by accident. The discovery of hydrothermal vents, black smokers, etc. Uh, all were uh, found while looking for something else. And when I think about how many wonderful discoveries we've made and then realize how little uh, real estate we made them in, the, the potential for discovery on our planet is amazing. What's hard is to convince sponsors. See, most sponsors want to know what you're going to discover and when. Well, those aren't sponsors I talk to very much because they don't understand. I can't tell you what I'm going to discover or when I'm going to discover it, but I can show you an incredible track record of making discoveries. And if you'll just bet on our horse, uh, I'll bet you we're going to make discoveries. And so that's what we're up. Uh, the next uh, year, to me, is going to be the year of ocean discovery because we finally actually have ships that are dedicated to the process of exploring. You don't have to borrow someone else's ship. No, nope. the big borrowing steal. Now. You have the resources. We have the resources, and Congress has been very generous in this last go around. The House and Senate were extremely generous in increasing. Uh, uh, we hope we have to go through a conference between the House and Senate, and then President Obama has to sign it. But I think we have a group of people now in charge that actually get. Get the uh, get it. They understand the importance of science, and they understand the importance of exploration. And so I'm very optimistic uh, because I believe many of our discoveries are going to have commercial impact upon our country. Mm -hmm. uh, there's vast resources that have yet to be discovered. Uh, the Easter Bunny didn't put them just on the land part. Uh, there's vast resources to be discovered, living and non-living resources, uh, pharmaceuticals, on the list goes. So I'm confident this, this process of discovery that we're just beginning will not only lead to great scientific discoveries and motivate kids to want to be explorers, but actually impact on the economy of our country. Well, we wish great luck to you, Robert Ballack. In, in Thank those, you. And we hope that we can be part of your discoveries. You'll come back and talk to us. When you discover we'll something new. Well, stay tuned. The, we'll stay the game tuned. has just begun. The, my best stuff is in front of me, not behind me. The best is yet to come. All right. Thank you very much. Bob Ballard is the president of the Institute for Exploration and Explorer in Residence for the National Geographic Society, also director of the Center for Ocean Exploration and Archaeological Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, happy holiday to you, Bob. Thank you, sir. Good luck to you. That's about all the time we have for our program today. Greg Smith composed our theme music. We had help today from NPR librarian Kim Oleski. If you'd like to write to us, surf over to our website at sciencefriday.com. Uh, we're podcasting and blogging and Twittering and tweeting all week long. Uh, back editions of Science Friday are there. Uh, you can download this site, uh, podcast uh, as soon as we get it digitized up there on uh, iTunes or, or on our website and on NPR's website. You can write us a letter the old-fashioned way. I call it the, cl the classic way. Science Friday for West 43rd Street, room 306, New York, New York, 10036. And also we'll take your mail at sciencefriday.com. 
Have a great and safe and happy Fourth of July weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato in New York.